well, I look at ethics and integrity. And so, well, meaningless words. I mean, it is meaningless words. I mean, they're, you know, what's ethics? What's integrity? What do people take this as a meaning? And it, it just, so you're missing the point. It's what you do. It's not what you call yourself. We could all call ourselves bananas and it wouldn't change. What do events, news, and culture tell us about how to be more effective at training and communicating? Whether you're in compliance, HR, risk, or general management, effective and ethical leadership requires two things, a consistent, dependable process, and eight specific mindsets that keep you real and salient to your audience. Welcome to the Eight Mindsets Podcast. Well, hello, it's Nicole Rose here, Nicole Rose from the Gold Coast in Australia. And I am co-host of the Eight Mindsets podcast with Jason Meyer. And I say welcome back because Jason and myself have taken a couple of months off and we are delighted to be back on the show with you. So thank you for listening. And today it is really an episode worth listening to because on the show today, you get to be a fly on a wall in a conversation between myself and the former Chief Compliance Officer for Rio Tinto and many other amazing organizations, Hugh Bigwood. And Hugh and I have a really interesting chat about what compliance really is, the future of compliance, the return on investment for an organization, and really looking at what it is that compliance brings to the business. It's a fascinating listen. I was actually gonna divide the episode up into two, so instead of one 40 minutes, but two 20 minutes, but it is so good, you need to listen to the whole thing together. You and I have spoken about this before in terms of the difference between lawyers and compliance folks. You know, lawyers are very, lawyers know what they have to know for a specific thing. Yeah. So they focus on, there's an issue, let's, you know, this is the case law on this issue and that's it. Whereas compliance will actually say, well, what do we need to know for the future? Like, what do we need to be thinking about? And we might not know all the intricacies of a case. We might not know the overture and this and that. But we basically look at the ramifications and the risk profile of a company based on what's happening around the world, yeah? Well, there's been a fantastic – I was listening to a podcast recently um, about a guy called – I'm trying to think of his name – Rue Smith or something. I'll have to go and find it. And he's just done a book around uh, some of this stuff. And one of the things that's come out is um, that, you know, medics – medicine changed in about the 19th century and they suddenly understood science and they moved from their traditional thing of removing uh, the bad bits and um, sucking out bad humors to science and they understood viruses and and other things like that but they compared this to legal the legal industry hasn't changed hasn't actually really changed ever built by the hour (laughs) no no the fees have gone up no, no, the hourly rates have, have gone up. That, that's unfair. But, but, their, but their, their approach hasn't. And I think what you've just said is, is really quite true. Lawyers traditionally, and there, is, there are exceptions, are they look back at the past. They look back at the precedent. They look back at what the last case was, and they try and apply it to the future. But they're always past thinkers. They're always looking back. And, and I think you're right. I think... And what, what I'm what I've been trying to teach a lot of the legal groups that I've managed is actually you've got to think the other way around. You've got to think future. And I've just I did a I, I was work in a workshop yesterday with a compliance person and the medical director um, and some other people, and we were looking through you know what is the future internally, what is the future externally, what do we need to do as a result, what's the impact for compliance? And I used to do this at. Abbott, I used to do this at Pfizer, yeah, I did this at Levanova. You've been there, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and this is, but it's it's how do you actually start stop looking at the past and what you've done in the past and applying it? Start looking at now there's lessons to be learned from the past. We don't we don't want to ignore the past, but you've got to start looking at the future and say, well, what does this mean? What's the change going to be? What's the external environment going to change? Um, and what does that mean in terms of how we're going to change? So the classic one that is affecting a lot of people at the moment is. COVID accelerated the use of digital. So yep. the fact that we're talking like, you know, WebEx and video chat was used before COVID, 
But then COVID came and then everybody uses it. I mean, it, it's like it has become the social norm. Um, messaging has gone up. Um, and so that changes how people communicate. That changes the etiquette. That changes the social norm of, of what you do. You know, is it polite to um, blur out your background? Is it polite? I mean, and so it's, it's changed all these things. But it's also changed the compliance world because our risks have changed. In the pharmaceutical world, how we interact with doctors has entirely changed. We're now interacting over messaging, interacting over video. And that changes how you apply the laws because every, all the laws are written about written material being left, mm. not about stuff you show on a screen on a, on a computer. Yeah. When you then look around the compliance groups, what you're seeing is this massive change of names at the moment. So the word compliance is disappearing, in my, in my view, a very good reason. And you're seeing ethics coming up and integrity and everybody's changing their name to try and get away from this idea of compliance. Compliance is negative, police, um, and they're trying to do anything else. So mm -hmm. they're trying to reinvent themselves. But the problem is that they're missing the point. Your name is not going to reinvent yourself. It's what you do is going to reinvent yourself. And I had this big argument about a year, two years ago with someone. And I was, I was in with one of, I was in with the um, Institute of Business Ethics. And we were trying to see if we could set up a professional association for compliance people and a code of conduct for compliance people. Because there's a big issue for compliance at the moment is there's more compliance people in jail than lawyers for doing yeah. absolutely nothing but their wow. job. Wow. Um, and there's more liability coming on the compliance person. And there's yeah. some really big issues. Like, you know, if you have a whistleblower come to you and whistleblowers about the board of directors or senior managers, what do you do? Do you disclose the name of the whistleblower? And so we've got some really horrible ethical issues that lawyers have never cared mm. about. They have privilege. They hide behind that. Mm. Um, Very true. But so I was, I was talking at this, this meeting and I was saying this, and the person turned around and said, oh, but I'm not a compliance person. Mm -hmm. I'm an ethics and integrity person. Oh, okay. Yeah. And you're going, but what's the difference? Well, I look at ethics and integrity and so well, meaningless words. I mean, it is meaningless words. I mean, they're, you know, what's ethics? What's integrity? What do people take this as a meaning? And it, it just, so you're missing the point. It's what you do. It's not what you call yourself. We could all call ourselves bananas and it wouldn't change. But we're not, the problem is it, it does have a, an impact, but it doesn't have as massive impact as people think. So I think, I think I think there's a couple of things. Firstly, I think there's a there's a part of compliance which is awesome, which I think I mean Hugh, you originally taught me this, which is the entrepreneurship of compliance, um, which is all about look, how do we build a business internally? Like because lawyers think about how do we market and how do we get clients, but quite frankly, they don't have to be somebody that people come to unless they need them whereas compliance you want people to come to you before you need them like you want people you want to have Absolutely. a seat at the table and so the entrepreneurship kind of like so there, there's two parts to that there's how do you make mess less with more which you obviously did at Rio Tinto because you ran a compliance team of what between six and 12 people over a period of what, five or six years was that right well, it went to 65 by the end. <laughs> yeah, well, that's because you've got a lot of people reporting to you. But generally, like the core group, yeah, yeah? so the core team yeah. who are actually line two, yeah, were a very few, very, very, very small mm. handful of people. Mm. I mean, you have Peggy running speak out across the entire organization, yeah? How mm. do you do less with more? Like, so you've got that part of it. And then you've got the other part of it is, well, how do I – how do people know me? Like, how do I get a seat at all the tables? Because you didn't go in there saying, right, we're compliance, we're a separate function. You went, how can I go to HR? How can I be involved in this? How can I be involved in every single thing? And suddenly your name was known extremely quickly within the organizations. You didn't hide. You didn't sit in the office and hide around. You, you were like, how do I put myself out there? Yeah, this isn't a convenient job. This is, I'm going to make this incredibly inconvenient for everyone. Like, <laughs> I'm going to, you know, I'm going to cause a lot of work for myself, which is, is what you did. Yeah. I, I mean, this is what I saw in the first year, mm. um, which was great because I got to observe it. And so I think there's kind of like the, the part about teaching lawyers is also 
how to be part of a business rather than sit on the sidelines and advise. Like, I think that's a one big thing. And that's why general counsel should not run compliance. Like, compliance, yeah, like, compliance function needs to be separate, but that's, you know. Yeah, that, that I look. I absolutely agree with that. But I think I think it's really interesting what you said. I love hearing how people observe how I've behaved. Oh yeah, it, it, it's brilliant. Um, but but you're you're absolutely right. Is when you go in, you know, I I'm a, I'm a real massive fan of self service, self service, self service, and and everything I did at Rio and I did at Abbott and I did at Leaving Over and I did at Evercare was how do you create that self service? And to create that mm. self service, you have to go in, and you have to, you know. I've generally been quite lucky because I've generally taken over from very strict lawyers. Yeah. And that means my approach is generally loved by the business because they want, yeah. my God, that's just, that's just fresh air. Um, but I think the other thing that lawyers and a lot of managers forget is in your first year of working in a new company, or even in your first few months of working in a new company, you've got to generate goodwill. And you've got to generate a massive amount of goodwill because at some point you're going to have to make a really horrible decision that yes. is not going to be popular and yes. you've got to spend that goodwill. What are you going to use to generate your goodwill? What are you going to go in and do with the company that is mm-hmm. going to generate and make them look at you differently and say, actually, they're thinking about me. They're thinking about value for me. They're they're not thinking about the company. They're not thinking they're actually doing something that I'm going to do. And because they're, I'm going to do some, they're going to do something for me, I'm willing to do something in return for them. And it can be as simple as, you know, you had nine policies to read. Now I give you one policy to read. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what, uh, and, and I think it goes further than that, doesn't it? It's kind of like, I'm going to improve the way that we work together. And yes. I think the other thing, and I was talking to someone else about this today, is what is the return of investment on compliance? Like, how do people understand? Because with ESG, like with safety, we had this return on investment is your life. Like, you know, if Mm -hmm. I I will follow, I will follow this five-step process because the return on investment is I get to go home safely or that my team gets to go home safely, tick. Okay. ESG, what's the return on investment? Well, we get to be more profitable, the company gets more liked, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's now a license to operate. What's the return of investment in compliance? And I think also with compliance. And I think there's a lot of metrics that can be shown that people just aren't digging into. I mean, look at Rio Tinto. I mean, you can go into a lot more detail than I can, but just saving, you know, um, iron ore 10,000 hours a year on you know, just because you, you cut the training down <laughs> and change the way that you're doing that. Or, you know, the speak out program, we can save X amount of time on reporting or like, is there something, is there the value well, and then the return on investment as well? I look at it slightly differently from that. I, I, I agree with what you're saying, um, but I look at the value slightly differently. One, I don't look at the value to the company. I look at the value to the individual because the value to the individual is far more important. The value to the company is a byproduct of the value to the individual. If I get the individual to understand and and think they're good, then that's going to, you know, I have an advocate, Mm -hmm. but also that's going to translate into value overall to the company. The return on investment is a really interesting calculation. And one of the things I've been trying to do is use data generated through compliance programs for the value to the business. And and I'll give you a a classic one that, and, and I think it's one of my best, best examples. So in pharmaceuticals and in medical technology, you have something called transfer of value disclosures. It's called Sunshine Act in the US. It's called Bertram in France. But it's where you have to disclose all of the money you've ever paid to a healthcare professional, down to about a dollar. Wow. And it's seen as a big compliance issue. You know, you have to do all of these reports every year. Um, There's timings throughout the year. Some of the states in the US require their own reports. And it's just seen as a compliance issue. It's just seen as, oh, God, we've got to do it. Collect all the data. Get finance to give you data. Get this customer relationship management. Compliance, pour over it to make sure it's all accurate and submit it. But what they missed was this was the only time this data was being collected altogether in a company. Mm-hmm. And what actually, if you started analyzing the data, you started seeing some really interesting trends. 
So what we did is we plotted a lovely graph of the amount of expenses used by HCPs. So, you know, going to meetings, uh, meals, Mm -hmm. uh, sponsorship, grants, donations. And we plotted it by rep, by sales rep. And we did that across the whole of the US business. And then we did it actually across the whole of the European business as well. And we plotted a graph. And the rep, single, did give names and the amount they spent. And we got this graph that was quite incredible. At one side, it was huge amounts. I mean, it was, this person was spending an absolute massive amount on HCPs. Mm-hmm. And the other end was almost nothing. And then what we did was we overlaid that with how much revenue to each of them. are yeah. each of these reps generating. And what everybody expected is it would follow Mm-hmm. You know, you, you didn't want to hear it, but yeah. it, it should follow the, the, the amounts because that was a traditional model. What we found is it didn't have any correlation at all. Absolutely wow. none. Wow. But what, why is this relevant for the business? Well, the business suddenly realized that the selling model they were using, they wanted to look at the selling model where the HCP, where almost no expenses were being given to the HCP, almost no grants or donations or anything. No money was being spent on this, but still the revenues were high. That was the sales model. So this, the compliance data showed them what the most effective sales model was. And of course, the byproduct of that is if the most effective sales model is not paying anything out, it also is an immediate compliance benefit Mm -hmm. because you remove the bribery risk almost entirely. So what we also found was in every single country we were in, the person at the, the far left, which was the most the, the most amount of expenses, was every single time was a fraud. Wow. Yeah. Every single time. So 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 they were overclaiming or whatever. Overclaiming. Yeah. 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 We had one person who um brother owned a restaurant and they, yeah. they used that restaurant yeah. every single time. So every single receipt yeah. was the same restaurant. Yeah. Um but what was really weird was it was the same for every country. It wasn't different. Yeah, yeah. The same pattern. There was no geographical difference. It was the same. We saw exactly the same pattern for exactly the same product groups well, every single time. Well, well, Hugh, is this not the same argument for, as we have for AML? Exactly. Is 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 know your customer? Is not is are the neck are the best sales reps in the world? The people that know their customer the best. Like, yeah. I want to know how your organizational structure, you know, I want to know about, uh, you know, I, I need to understand who the shareholders are and I need to understand who this person is and that stakeholder. Why is that a bad thing? Like, I just understand your company. I understand the trust structure. I understand it. Like, that's a very good thing. That is so useful. I understand the structure of the organizations I'm working in. I'm working with. Yeah, but you've absolutely hit the nail on the head again. Is is And, and again, perhaps this is what legal and compliance need to understand about the business is, this is just basic sales and marketing. Yeah. If you're going to sell to someone, you've got to know about them. The more you know about them, the easier the sell is. The yeah. more you can do, the more you, even tiny little details. And, you know, you can, you know, the, the, the data protection people get upset. You know, why do you need to know their, their wives and children's name? It's very simple because it starts the conversation. We're social beings. We start the yeah. conversation with how's your family? What's the weather like? What oh did you have a good time on your holiday? You know, that's how if if you're liked, people will you can influence. And so and so how so let's just step back a second. So like you know, some like legal, we, we started speaking about legal and supporting legal, and then we kind of looked at um the structure of an organization how and how <clears throat> Legal have traditionally kind of dealt with ethics and compliance and, and the difference between compliance. So just stepping back, what and just looking at, at the broader picture, what do you think it's going to look like in five years' time? Three years' time. Um, like, like what 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 would be a better world for whatever we call compliance? Let's say we call it bananas. What's what's a better world for bananas? Well, so the the better world is is it doesn't exist. The better yeah. world is, is that it is it is morphed into culture and in itself. But that you know that's yeah. that's really, I'm, I'm I think it's it's not going to happen. I think the better world is, it's recognised as a separate group. 
and its professionalism and it we professionalize the industry that that's where we need to go okay um i think i I agree with you it doesn't sit within legal because i think what legal want to do and what compliance want to do are two different things um legal is all about defending the company compliance is not about defending company compliance is about protecting the company and it's a slight it's a nuanced difference between the two compliance is about prevention and protection legal is about reaction and defense um Legal shouldn't be that way, by the way, but that's that's where it's ended up. Um, I think the what one of the most interesting things for me, and you, you've already mentioned, it, is ESG. I think yeah, there is ESG and compliance will come together. It has to, because it, it you know it, it's they're so embedded together, um, and it's this societal positioning. Um, but we've got to we've got to stop looking at it as compliance. We've got to stop looking at it as meeting the rules what we have to do reporting these are all just symptoms we've got to actually look at what's the benefit and it goes back to what you said what's the value so what it looks like in a few years is a very lovely value proposition mm. now by the way the the data right there at the moment that says good companies do better than bad companies is pretty rubbish it's pretty slim yeah um and actually there's a whole lot of really good examples of bad companies that bring them brilliantly so i think you know there's that, that value proposition we've got to really work on and, and get something right. What's it look like in future? Smaller groups, more automation, more embedded, compliance going into the background, and really a, a different approach, really a far more sales and marketing educator approach. Far more, you know, this is, this is a teaching approach, but also trying to bring all insights in back into the business. Well, let's just say it's probably a realistic answer because, you know, I, I could say, and I agree with you, compliance is part of everybody's role. The issue with that is however well-meaning people are, well-meaning does not cut it. Like, even if you've got the best of intentions, we know so many examples of where good intentions just go wrong. So in terms of being able to make the right judgment calls, make the right decisions right risk-based decisions you know you you can't expect um anybody just to be able to do that consistently across the business and that's what compliance to me is is about centralizing and having consistency so we have standards so there is consistency so we know what that person's doing over there is consistent with what we're doing over there so when we have you know to look at um our, our, if our activities are looked at by a regulator, it's consistent. Like, and that's processes are one of the biggest things that. So I do think so, it needs to be separate. Yeah. Okay. I um I take one step back from that. I'm not really interested in what the regulator thinks at yeah. all. Really, yeah. I'm not. I, I think that that tends towards the defence, and I think that's I can get defence out as a by, byproduct. The consistency argument is really good. I like the consistency argument. Um, I don't look as people, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. Good intentions can be great, but they can still do absolutely the wrong yeah. thing. People are not good or bad. It you depends what what position you put them in. And there's, there was a, some lovely conversations years ago about, you know, there's been a whole lot of people say, well, everybody has a price. And I actually, I actually agree with that. I mean, some people's price is incredibly high, but everybody has a price. And everybody will be tempted at some point it depends what they're tempted by um and that's just because we're human and that that's there's nothing wrong with that so what the so compliance this, so this job is, is this sounds like a scene from the devil's advocate by the way yeah um yeah. but it's it's so what our job is is we're a little bit of the conscience we have to help steer people we have to help guide people we are never going to be there when they want to make that decision, mm. but we've got to have got them to the point where they have tools and guidance and other bits and pieces, part of that standards, parts of that other things to help them make that decision, to help them get through that, that issue. And, you know, I, 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 I love what we came up with uh, at, at Rio. Um, you know, I, so going back, you know, people look at visions and missions. Horrible corporate stuff. Legal Advisor had one of the best ones I've ever come come across. It was to do, to teach, and protect. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. And I just I thought, love that. Just, I, I love that. Mm-hmm. So then when it, when Rio, we had um, prepare, prevent, protect. Yeah. Prepare the yeah. staff for what they what the risks and issues they're going to come across. Prevent issues early. Protect the individual and the company. Yeah. And I think that that really is my bit of become a bit of my mantra, yeah. and really sort of has driven what what I see as compliance rules is. We're not about enforcing. We're not about what we're doing. Is we're the guides. We're the people who have to ask the questions, so that people go. It's almost like the little angel and little devil on the shoulders. I, um, I love that. Do you know what, Q? I mean, I've just I wrote down as you said originally. I'll be your guide, and then you talk about prepare, prevent, protect. Like, what do you do as a coach on the sideline? Like, what do you do when you're preparing your team? Like, this is also coaching. So you want to hmm. be there. You want to be so. You know the. Wouldn't it be amazing if there was a function that was there for people to say, look, can I run something by you? I just don't know how to deal with this. And you'd say, okay, let's, let's go through it. And instead of you telling them the answer, you'd be coaching that's, them through that's, the answer. But that's what, that's what the compliance job is. That's what the compliance group is there to do. Mm. We're there to be able to identify the leading indicators, the behavioral indicators, and guide people through what is the natural evolution of a hotline? No, it's an advice line. It's every single hotline you see, whether it's a drugs line, whether you see it as uh, emergencies, whether it's, you know, um, 111, NHS 111 in the UK, um, hospital lines, um, helplines, advice lines, all of them started as hotlines and ended up as advice lines. And that's exactly the same as in companies is you want people to be able to phone up or come and see you or do themselves to say, I've got this dilemma or I think I'm going to have this dilemma. What should I do? Yeah. And then the additional thing that compliance does is we look at the data saying, you may not think you're going to have this dilemma, but we can tell you you're going to have this dilemma. And that goes back to my rep per expenses. So we've got those two assets is we're looking at leading indicators um and then we're also acting as that you know that that guidance on ongoing and so you know you're going to have this dilemma or you're you know i've got this dilemma how do i deal with it and we can talk it through and you're absolutely right we are not there to give solutions we are there because we are not in their position and and actually we can't be giving solutions like in terms of like we simply can't otherwise the compliance function is not doing the, their job because the compliance function can't answer those questions. Um, we can't turn around and say whether the person that we're offering a dinner to or whatever it is to is going to be a benefit. We, we don't know the commercial situation. It should be them who makes the judgment calls on the commercial situation. So um, this is fascinating, Hugh. Okay. So I have, I have three other questions. Um, Firstly, um, so what? What's your what? What does next look like for you? Because I love the fact that you're doing this. Because I think that the reason I love it is because I do think there needs to be more disruption, and I do think there's a lot of people who are, you know, would be more, you know, more of a yes man. Um, and I think that, you know, you do need a disruptor, but at more than one organisation. That that's one thing I'd say. So I, I I love the fact that you're doing this. Is this going to be something that you're going to continue? So all the way through my career, I have never been money motivated. And yeah. so I've done some really strange changes in my career that people have absolutely looked at me and said, what the hell are you doing? Um, you know, I, I went from a big pharmaceutical company where I'd have gone up way up into the legal, looking pretty senior. And then I went to a generics company. And research pharma and generics are like black and white. I mean, they, they research pharma looks at generics and say they're pirates, they're thieves. But I was fascinated about their business model. I went to generics. I became general counsel in a generics company. I learned more in those two years than I ever did at 11 years at Pfizer. Wow. And I saw a different world. Um, I've worked in very large companies. And actually... Um, 
well, and I got very quite senior in, in some of these companies. And I said, well, actually, what's it like to be a junior lawyer again? So I, I literally dropped. I was on the board. I was on a, wow. a leadership, a, a global leadership team, a general wow. counsel, and I dropped to be a junior lawyer again. Wow. So you could actually do the work, yeah? So I could actually see the, see the work again and see what it is. I also thought I was too young to be a general counsel at the age I was, and I didn't like it. I didn't like the politics, but I wanted to go back down. And I learned so much more coming back up through the ranks that how it was mm. done. Ended up senior again, which was a bit of a pain. We want to. And then I said, well, you know, I've worked for these very large companies all the time. I wonder what's like in a medium and small size company. So I went to medium and small size companies. And I've changed industry. I've um, changed roles. I've, I've gone to small companies, medium sized companies. I'm really fascinated at the moment about how small and medium sized companies cope yep. with um, compliance. Because the people we have to listen to yeah. are all the bloody big companies yeah. who have got staffing, yeah. who have got money. And it's not the same. You know, I'm, I'm working yeah. for a biotech company in the Netherlands who's got 20 employees. Yeah. Yeah. You can't, you don't go out and write 20 policies and, you know, you yeah. don't have to have certain things. But they're going to struggle yeah. when it comes to due diligence. And and you you mentioned the regulator a bit ago. The problem is all these big companies get into trouble and they create the rules and they want everybody to follow the same rules as they're following because they've had to take the hit. But these yeah. small companies can't do that. Yeah. And then they do all of these, you know, these massive due diligence programs. You know, I this I've, I'm fascinated by how do you build something that works for the small and medium-sized company? Mm. Yeah. I'm fascinated by could you and, and this is a bit more controversial. Could you outsource compliance? Oh, well, we've spoken about this before. Like, yeah. I remember reading and you and said I'm, to me, we could be outsourced tomorrow. They could make yeah. that decision. And I think, and I'd love to come up with a model of what an outsourced compliance. You know, um, oh, what's her name? Is it Barbara Hayward? Oh, I, I, I can't remember her name at the moment, her. but she's yeah. done it with data protection. So now you can outsource the whole of data protection. Um, why can't you do it with compliance? And going back to that model we're talking about as a guidance, actually, you could. There's no reason to. Because there's almost nothing you need internally. You couldn't do externally, provided you have enough knowledge, and it goes back to the sales marketing, you have enough knowledge about what the company is, the culture and everything else. Yeah. And you've got, you're, you're going into their systems and you're being able to do their culture checks and everything else. Because you can learn that. So I'm, I'm fascinated by that. So, And if you can do that, you can change the whole model for the small and medium-sized companies. Which, and, and I absolutely agree with you, because I, I work with small and medium-sized companies, and I love working with them. Um, and obviously, that that's, you know, companies need somebody like, like me because they don't have their own functions. Um, but what I love is they absolutely have to do more with less. And because of it, they come up with amazing solutions. Yeah, but yeah. you've got to also make sure that they don't, they understand fully that, Perfection is the enemy of good. Yes, it is. Yeah. And that's actually quite a, a one that's, that's quite difficult to actually get them to really understand is, and, and it, again, it goes back to a little bit of lawyers. Um, people think, oh, no, it's got to be perfect. It's got to be, you know, it's got to be jazzy. It's got to be perfect. It's got to be absolutely simple. Actually, it doesn't. None of these things. It's got to be engaging and it's got to make sense. Well, you've actually answered the question I asked you before is the what's the future of compliance? And there's there's two parts to it is either we professionalize the profession. So there are the standards and values and principles and everything so that we so that we are protected or we start thinking about an outsourced compliance model, which isn't just outsourcing the systems and processes, which is currently in the model. Yeah. So the current model is we're just, you know, outsourced our checks or outsource this and we're, you know, mm -hmm. we're. Um, which is all well and good, apart from the fact that you need to integrate that <laughs> into whatever the organisations, in, 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 into whatever other systems the organisation's working through. So I, I, I love the idea of actually making it an outsource coaching guide function um, who understands the business and doesn't only mm. understand the business, but but more importantly, understands the industry. This is why I think it could work, mm. because you have a function that actually understands the industry and understands all the, new, you know, uh, and, and can look at what's happening in not just the industry, but generally in the world 
and come up with solutions and guidance and questions for the organization to consider outside of just having its own function. And the other thing that makes it super cool is it's impartial. When I give advice, I'm not getting anything better <laughs> giving you this advice. I, you know, I've got a contract with you anyway. <laughs> I don't get a bonus. Mm. I don't get a promotion. I don't get a seat at the board. I don't get on the exec. I don't get taken out for dinner. I just do my job. <laughs> so, you know, um, and I love that idea of the impartiality of it. But I think, so I think, you know, I, I'm just, as we're talking, I'm thinking, you know, that's exactly what I do for my Dutch client. That, that's yeah. who I am. I mean, the, the general counsel phones me up and says, what do you think of this? Can, you talk, can I talk you through this? And, you know, every so often the, she gets a few people sitting down and, and we're, we're going to do three or four sessions in, in December exactly doing this. I'm doing a you know risk workshop with their leadership team and then I'm doing each group exactly that instead of the dilemma training. But but it is, it's just, it, I am the outsourced compliance group. But I think it's, it's, it's not a massive leap to that model. I think the two models have to go side by side. I think you have to have that outsourcing model and then the other more traditional model is always going to exist yeah. because there is, again, we're people and we love to own things. And therefore, we never quite trust things when we're not, we don't own them. Um, so there's certain roles that, you know, you, you have to, you have to bring in. You know, there's an interesting thing in the legal uh, world. There's a number of very senior lawyers around the world who have made a whole living being the outsourced conscience for CEOs. Yes. There's about, there's about yeah. six to ten of them around the world, and they get phoned up by CEOs and say, what do you think of this? And, and they get ideas bounced off them. Totally, absolutely how you describe it. It's, it's um, there's, there's nothing in it for them, so it's impartial. You get to pretty much, they get to say pretty much what they like. That there's no, you know, there's none of this. It's saying, you know, I've got to make keep you happy because otherwise I don't get the money. And and they make a, a fortune out of this. It's, it's a whole business model for them. Yeah, I think, and I, I, I think that the reason I love what you say is because I, I love the idea of, and of compliance being accessible for anybody because it is needed to protect people. It is needed to protect the individuals. There are a lot of, you know, there's a lot of shame attached with an organization having a finding against them or, you know, and, and I, I've seen it with the organizations that I work with large and small. And I think it does, it, it does impact individuals. You want to feel proud of the organization that you go to work with. You want to feel safe there. There's so many different reasons why compliance is important. And I think make it accessible so that you don't need to have a massive budget. I think that that's a really, really, really good reason for doing it. Um, and I think it could complement a lot of fantastic providers out there. I mean, I was speaking to, to Nick Gallo this morning from Compliance Line, and I love his mission and vision, which is all about, um, it's, it's all about protection. And it's all about, and I think, I think having that model could really, and, and can you imagine, Hugh, just getting the benefit of being part of, an organization that actually knows what's happening in the industry and actually applies that data, that information to your, well, it, I just think that could be. It goes back to that consistency bit. It goes back yeah. to, you know, you, you can create the the consistency, but you create the consistency and the the comfort in a, in a totally different way. I, I, I think it, it definitely for the smaller medium, it, it, it will work. I actually think it will work for the big as well, but the big will will take a long time to sort of get used to that idea. And there's a whole lot of people that will fight against it because they've well, made a huge amount of money um, doing something but, totally different. But if 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 line one actually worked, it would work. If, if line one <laughs> genuinely was a line one within what line one should be, yeah, then it mm. could work. If line one still keep on thinking they need to defer to line two and they're not able to make the decisions, then it can't work. So it depends how well line one and line two is integrated within an organization as well. Absolutely. And, but, you know, this, this goes back down to the whole conversation about what is, as a compliance person, what is your approach to, to, to your job? Are you a rule maker? Are you a... Uh, policeman, and I have no problem with that policeman actually, because I've, I've called myself a policeman in companies many, many times. Yeah. Um, are you what? What do you do? Do you just tell them what to do? Do you help them get to where they need to be? I mean, and this is the approach. I mean, if you look at 
compliance groups, some of the stuff they put out is just unbelievable. And you think you've forgotten what your business does. It's preachy. It's preachy as well. Yeah. And I, I used to tell off one of my groups massively if they dared preach to the business. Yeah. Um, that, that was my that was one of the most cardinal sins of a compliance group is you you are not allowed to preach because you don't know what they're going through. Yeah. You don't know what the yeah. pressure is, you don't know what their individual circumstances are, you cannot preach. Yeah. Yeah. I think but I there's think, a lot of people out there preaching. Well, and you know, and 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 long and and long may they continue because it makes, you know, it kind of takes compliance away from being accessible and they're needed more. You know, so if you make something accessible and easy, you don't preach. You kind of explain and work with somebody. Oh, suddenly people get it. We don't, you know. So I, I, I get that. Um, the other question I have is, the 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 model that um I'd come up with with Jason is the DIY of compliance a little bit, which is kind of what we're talking about. Well, it's it's kind of it's kind of empowering compliance people to be able to be uh, do more with less and do more themselves so kind of like the mindset of the entrepreneur the mindset of the storyteller the mindset of a marketer or advertiser um, even the mindset of a, of a producer so that instead of thinking that we need to rely on licensed content or we need to rely on an external provider we need to even rely on our own internal um, training teams um, they're able just to roll their sleeves up and go okay we need something in the next week let's just do it I can't wait. It actually is quite important just to get it out. I don't want perfect. I want good enough so that people can relate to the message. What, what, what's your thoughts on that? <laughs> realistically, like, like, so, like, like, like realistically, like, like, like yeah. living in so the world. I have, I've always said the compliance role is marketeer, salesman, uh, judge, jury, executioner, <laughs> um, producer, film producer, actor, um, it's it's one of the most widest roles I've ever come across in my life. Uh, you know, I'm an ex taxi driver. I've <laughs> I've been uh, you know as a soldier for a bit. But yeah. this this is this allows you to do everything. Um, people don't necessarily realize that, and they don't necessarily trust what they can do, and they yeah. think it's got to be jazzy, and they think it's got to be professional, and they think they've got to go to external counsel, and they don't trust themselves. Mm. And what I absolutely believe in what you're teaching, because what I, what I really firmly believe in is, is try it and see. Mm. You know, this is where design thinking comes in. Mm. This is where, uh, you know, prototype, try it, try it with a little group. What's, what's, what is, what's the worst you can do? And I think, you know, I, I think everybody is feeling discomfort. And so, well, you probably know the right answer. So just, just try it. Just go mm. You know, you're not really going to harm anything if if you do, and and it goes back. And it, you know, on the training side is, you don't need to do anything spectacular. You just need to do something engaging and maybe slightly different from what it is at the moment. I I'm a firm believer. So you you don't need all of this fancy stuff. You don't need certified materials. You definitely don't need legal materials. Yeah. What you've got, you've got to know your customer and know what's going to how they're going to react, and then you've just got to go out there and try. Yeah, I love that. And learn and learn yeah. from your failures. Be willing to fail. I mean, if you think uh, when we've been working, how many of our stuff, how much of our stuff failed? Well, I think I think I was probably at a 50, 60 percent failure rate on well, some of my projects. Well, I always thought it was, and I always thought it was a success if people knew about the failure because they're at least interested. Yeah. Like, like yeah. I thought training. If someone turned around and said to me that training was terrible, didn't cover this point, you missed that. You should have put in that scenario. Um, that people would never relate to that. I'd be like, fantastic. You got yeah. it. You watched it. You you understood it. You analyzed it for me. That is effing amazing. Like to me, that was the best response I could possibly get. I didn't have an ego about what was in there because I'm not the company. So yeah. So yeah. Don't you remember Deborah's first uh, comments when we showed her first risk to roll? She did the first mute modules. And we did that lovely module on there's no such thing as a free lunch. And we put yeah, 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 the really yeah. annoying music to it. Yeah. Um, and she hated it. Yeah. And I remember having a conversation. She said, no, no, you can't put that out. It's horrible. The mo yeah. music's annoying. Yeah. Um, and, and I said, well, what, what was the message you got from it? And she went, well, there's no such thing as a free lunch. There's always going to be a backstory. So perfect. You've got the message done. Yep. Done. She went, We're putting it out there. 
oh, we'll put it out there. And if you, yeah. the amount of comments we got back from that annoying music saying, you know, I hate that music. Yeah. You know, every time yeah. I bloody hear that, I think there's no such thing as a free lunch. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, this is the point. Uh, the, one of the things that compliance people really do badly, compliance groups really do badly, and I don't blame them for it, is they ask senior people their viewpoint on it rather than asking the people who are actually going to have to do the training. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Senior people don't know. Yeah. You've got to, you know, if you're marketing a product, you never market a product with customers that will never buy your product. You market a product with customers that are going to buy your product or might buy your product. Mm. You don't, and you've got to do the same with everything you do in compliance is test it with the people that actually have to do this day by day. Don't test it with people who are sitting in a, a C-suite that have never done it maybe done it 20 years ago, because they have a tendency to say, well, I went through this, therefore you've got to go through it as well. And that doesn't get successful. But you're absolutely right. If I get that feedback, um, that's brilliant, because then I get I actually get something useful. But as you know, I always rely on love it or hate it. I want that yeah. emotional reaction to any of my materials, because mm -hmm. if they hate it, they're going to remember it and discuss it. If they love it, they're going to remember it and discuss it. And actually, at times, hate can be a more powerful driver than the love bit because it's they're more like people well it, it, it's a bit cultural people in britain always moan and therefore if you give something they hate it they'll moan more and actually the message well, goes quicker well, well to me this is exactly the same as walking into the tate gallery yeah mm. you're never going to forget what you disliked yeah exactly you're never going to forget and that's why i love art because art changes life because it <laughs> it, it a... us to have an emotion so I have a theory on team building and yep. um, all my teams are terrified of it because I say, well, you know, I'm not going to give you something that you really like doing. I'm going to do something you're going to really hate. And because when you all have that shared miserable experience, you, yep. that will bond you forever. Yep. And you will always come back to that commonality that, oh, do you remember when they made us do this? Yeah. If you have a really lovely experience, rarely do you all come back and say, do you remember that really lovely experience we had? It's more individual as a lovely experience, whereas suffering together is something. And I, my, my basis of this theory was um, we did a lawyer's meeting in the south of Ireland. And they put on this lovely meal across this, this loch. And you got into little rowboats and they rowed you across the loch to this lovely meal. It looked on the on the brochure. It looked like it's going to be absolutely amazing with the Morn Mountains in the background. You know, I can't remember which mountain it wasn't Morn, but it was the Southern Ireland Mountains. And the mountains in the background, the loch, and everything else. What's Ireland famous for? Um, I don't know the rain. Weather-wise, yeah. the rain. The rain. Yeah. So what? So yeah. we got into these boats in blue skies. Five minutes out into the loch, and it was a half an hour row across the loch the rain came down and it wasn't vertical rain. It was horizontal rain oh my gosh. and there was no cover on the boats yeah. and everybody got soaked through. And so by the time we got to the other side, everybody was miserable and shivering. And we went in and we saw these nice little sandwiches and dainty cold things. We go, just give us a bloody hot soup and we want hot chocolates and ourselves. But every single person, even today, remembers that trip. Yeah. And it bonded the legal group more than anything else yeah. I have ever seen in my life. Yeah, I love that. I think that's that's such a nice story, Hugh. And I think, and I know how passionate you are about mentoring your team. Like I know that you push your team forward. I know that you put your name last and you put their name first. So I know what you try to do with your team. So that's a really nice story. Really, really <laughs> lovely speaking to you. Thank you. Thanks, Jim. No time. problem Great at all. To see you. Okay. Speak Bye -bye. soon. Bye. Oh, what a great conversation. Hey, everybody, it's Jason Meyer stopping in with the Compliance Anthem of the Week. And uh, Nick, you asked Hugh Bigwood what his choice was to go on our playlist of great songs uh, to run a compliance effort by. And he made a great choice, just a terrific, upbeat song. Uh, the title track from the 2004 gold debut album by Natasha Bedingfield, Unwritten. Uh, peaked at number five on the Billboard charts in America, the number six song of that entire year, 2004, used on TV show themes, heard again and again, and for good reason. It's so upbeat, so uplifting, 
uh, really is an anthem to get you going. And of course, the famous refrain, live your life with arms wide open. Today is where your book begins. The rest is still unwritten. Just a, a, a great message to have us looking forward. Now, I always give you a piece of trivia, Nicole, and, and here's one this week. Unwritten is actually the second appearance on our playlist by the former child actress turned musician, Danielle Brisbois. Uh, Danielle co-wrote and co-produced Unwritten, but she also is one of the founding members of the famous 1990s one-hit wonder rock band, The New Radicals, who already appeared, of course, on our playlist with the great anthem, You Get What You Give. So congratulations to Danielle and Hugh. That was a great pick. Back to you, Nick. So did I not tell you? Did I not tell you? It was worth waiting to the end. What a great session. What a great show. And one of the things that really brought to life for me was just how important it is for us to hone our future thinking. You know, as a lawyer, as an educator myself, as somebody who loves to talk about learning moments, I have a habit of really looking at the backstory. Um, and having one eye to the future really is something that is constantly something that takes some work. And this podcast, this interview, this, this session with Hugh just reminded me of how important it is that we look to the future. And so I am delighted that I got to share this with you. Um, Jason and I would also be delighted to speak with you. So if you are a compliance professional and you would like to share your thought leadership, please let us know. So you can either DM us on LinkedIn or why not sign up to www.8mindsets.com. So if you sign up to our site, we're gonna get access to our complimentary Eight Mindsets course. Um, you're going to get some great sessions in there, including the latest one, the one, one that's on there, which is The Power of the Doodle, and also a heap of other resources and ways to learn about how to produce your own effective in-house training. So the 8 Mindsets podcast is a production of the 8 Mindsets initiatives, copyright 2021, Create Training LTD, and Lead Good LLC, all rights reserved. And that's a wrap.